This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we're taking a deep dive into a surface-level topic, biological soil crust. We'll be talking about the important roles these organisms play in desert ecosystems and how drought, temperature increases, and physical disturbance are threatening their survival. It's a good show, recorded for you from Moab, Utah. Stay tuned. Disturbance coupled with warming would lead to less diverse communities of biocrust and potentially losses of functions we find to be really important, like soil stabilization and erosion prevention. For me, going on hikes in this area, it's made me be even more militant in my desire to not step on things. Today on Science Moab, we're speaking with Michaela Phillips. Michaela is an ecologist and postdoctoral researcher at the Southwest Biological Science Center in Moab. There, she studies how environmental stressors and invasive species change soil and plant communities. We begin our interview with Michaela explaining what biological soil crusts, or biocrusts, are. Biocrusts are so cool. I've been really lucky to get to move here and work on them. So they're a consortium of photosynthetic organisms that live on the soil surface. Sorry, what's a consortium? Consortium is just a group. So a big group of different organisms living together. Um, One of the things that's really cool about biocrusts is that there is just a large amount of diversity in a small area. And so if you've been on hikes in this area, you probably noticed that plant cover is pretty low and there's a lot of open space. And biocrusts often populate the spaces in between plants in on the Colorado Plateau, but in many drylands. And um, one of the really interesting things about them is that they can tolerate really hot and dry conditions and a lot of um, what we like to call environmental stress. When you say biocrust and when you say they're a group of organisms, like what exactly are we talking about? Um, so there's a lot of different types of biocrusts, and I would argue, and I think a lot of people would agree, that the Colorado Plateau has some of the most fabulous biocrusts in the world. So there's a couple different groups, the first being lightly pigmented cyanobacteria, and they're often the first to kind of populate bare ground, followed by darkly pigmented cyanobacteria. You know, those two things sound really similar, so what's the difference? Um, Visually, you can tell the difference between them because the darkly pigmented cyanobacteria make the ground almost black, whereas the light ones, they kind of keep the the brownish, reddish color of our soils. But both of them are really make the ground really bumpy and create what we also like to call microtopography. And then there's two other groups that are common on the Colorado Plateau, lichens and mosses. And they often come in after the dark and light cyanobacteria. You're talking about pigments and you're talking about colors. So if you're standing, you know, looking down at the soil, what would you see if you're looking at these different biocrust types? Like when we're out there in the desert, let's say we're walking along sand flats, are they all co-occurring? Are they going to be all of them mixed together? Or is it going to be like pretty obvious when there's some and another one? Tell me a little bit more about that. 
there's areas where they all occur together that are really diverse and you can take a picture the size of your hand and see some mosses, some lichens, and both dark and light cyanobacteria, but there's also areas that are just dominated by, by lightly pigmented cyanobacteria or maybe just the light and the dark. And so what an area with just lightly pigmented cyanobacteria would kind of look like this really bumpy ground and you'd be like, wow, that doesn't look like soil. There's almost like tiny little mountains and valleys. And that can increase as we move towards more darkly pigmented. And then the mosses, I mean, just if you've ever walked through a forest in the Pacific Northwest and you've seen carpets of moss, it can look like that. And one of the things that's really cool about the mosses is they look really different on a day after it's rained versus a day after it's really, really dry because they bring in and they unfurl um, their little fronds. They're very cute. They are very cute. Um, do we know why some areas have some crust types and some have different crust types? Yeah, I think that's a big question in biocrust research. So one thing uh, on a more landscape level that plays into what crusts are where has to do with climate. So here, even though it's dry here, we get a lot more precipitation than say like the Mojave Desert in Southern California, where there's not as many lichens and mosses. Um, it's much more cyanobacterial dominated. So I think precipitation and temperature has a big effect, but also here we have a lot, a lot going on in Moab um, and, in the Mo and in the Southeast Utah area. So disturbance is a big thing that affects what what occurs where as well. And so we have these different crust types that are there for different reasons. And so are they doing different things? Like when we hear don't bust the crust and that crust matters, is it that all crusts are equal or is that not necessarily the case? Yeah, so biocrusts provide a whole bunch of critical ecosystem functions. Um, ecosystem functions could be a variety of things. One example is soil stabilization. And one thing that we know from all of the amazing research that's been done is that they contribute to different functions, different amounts based on the type. So an example of that is mosses are known to have really high photosynthetic rates, which leads to higher carbon fixation. Uh, and then lichens are known to fix a really large amount of nitrogen. And by fixed nitrogen, I mean that they can take gaseous nitrogen from the atmosphere and make it available in the soil. And so this is known to increase plant performance, which is really cool. Super interesting. So you describe these different crust types and you kind of started getting into a little bit about how disturbance affects crust and that we have a lot going on here in Moab. Can you talk about ways that crust has been disturbed in the past that a lot of us might think of and some ways that we might think about crust becoming disturbed into the future? Yeah, so with the don't bust the crust slogan that I'm sure many locals have heard and visitors as well, we know that biocrusts are sensitive to physical disturbance, which is often driven by land use changes. So by land use change, an example of that would be developing a new 4x4 road or introducing grazing in an area that grazing wasn't previously there. And in Southeast Utah, we face a wide variety of land use change. We have recreational development and then also oil and gas pad development for resource extraction. So historically, physical disturbance has gotten a lot of attention because, because there's so much happening here and we know that physical disturbance is not good for crusts. 
Some of the research our group is currently conducting focuses on other disturbances that are less well understood, specifically climate. And one of the things we've focused on a lot is how changes to the timing and amount of precipitation has affected biocrest composition and abundance, as well as functions. And then another component of that is we know that this area will face warmer temperatures in the future. So we're also looking at how increased temperature would affect biocrest communities, both increased temperature alone, and then also looking at the interaction of the increased temperature and these changes to precipitation regimes. With the precipitation stuff, you said climate, but is it specifically climate change, like human-caused climate change that you're thinking is driving these, or is that something that could be part of just a natural variation in climate? It could be natural variation. The altered precipitation that we've been looking at on our experiment on the Colorado Plateau is a scenario that could happen here in, in fancy models, they predict things that might happen. Uh, And so one of those things that we've been looking at is smaller, more frequent rain events, like less than one millimeter, two millimeters of of rain, um, but just much more frequently. Doing this research, I bet you get asked this question a lot because I know it's on a lot of people's minds. You know, people wanna know how long does the crust take to come back after it's busted? And I know an experiment that you and your group are working on is kind of trying to ask that question. So can you tell us a little bit about the experiment and and how you're trying to figure out how long crusts take to recover? Yeah, I think in the world of crust research, recovery is kind of a hot topic, but really there haven't been very many studies that address those, those questions. There's a lot of conventional thought that crusts recover really, really slowly. And of course, that would vary by climate. So I've been working on pulling together data from two long-term experiments that we have in the Moab area. The first is a physical disturbance experiment that started in 1996. Um, We have two sites, one's in Arches and one's in Canyonlands. And for this physical disturbance, it was human trampling was the treatment. So it was basically just people walking really systematically across these plots every year from 1996 until 2011. So it's really like a chronic disturbance. And since 2011, there's been no disturbance and we've just kind of been waiting and looking at what's happening, what's coming back, what isn't coming back. And then the second experiment is a climate manipulation experiment that started in 2005, also in the Moab area, and it has three treatments. The first is a warming of four degrees Celsius above our ambient temperature. The second is this altered precipitation that I talked about a little bit, which is small, frequent rain events. And then the last treatment is the combination of the warming with the altered precipitation treatments. And so this experiment started in 2005, and one of the things that they found really early on before I was involved was that the altered precipitation led to really rapid moss mortality. The moss died super quickly. And so they stopped that treatment in 2012. So the the trampling and the altered precipitation treatments ended between six to seven years ago. So it allowed us this really awesome opportunity to investigate how recovery naturally progresses. How were you changing the temperature and precipitation out 
in the desert for these biocrusts. So for the temperature, we have uh, infrared lamps and there's a computer brain that says, it's this hot outside, make it four degrees hotter. So it's kind of this cool, it has a computer program that tells it turn lamp on, turn lamp off, and how hot to get it. Uh, and then for the altered precipitation, these were applied with backpack sprayers. Wow, so that's so interesting. So you're taking two different types of disturbance that have been applied in the past and you're just basically watching how they're recovering. And so does that mean that you're just like somehow measuring how much biocrust there is in those places that have seen a disturbance? Yeah, so the results are super interesting. Surprisingly, we found that under ambient temperatures, so without the warming, Biocrest recovered much faster than we had expected. In our study, we found evidence that the mosses and lichens are recovering. And then under the legacy of those, this altered precipitation treatment, uh, the darkly pigmented cyanobacteria were abundant. But under the treatment with ongoing warming and the legacy of altered precipitation, there were no signs of recovery, suggesting that warming kind of halts recovery, which is really not super surprising, but very interesting and a little depressing. And then warming by itself also led to a decrease in the presence of all of the types of biocrust that I talked about, except for lightly pigmented cyanobacteria. So this suggests to us that warming, both alone and in conjunction with other disturbances, could create what ecologists like to call alternative stable states. And that basically means that warming could cause a shift to a different type of crust. So in this situation, it would be from a diverse community that has lichens and mosses and darkly pigmented cyanobacteria to one that primarily consists of lightly pigmented cyanobacteria. And interestingly, the warming and the legacies of disturbances didn't reduce um, crust overall in compared to the control, but instead cause these changes to communities. Um, so it's kind of, even though there's a big shift in communities, it's not that we won't see any crust at all on the Colorado Plateau under warming temperatures. So let me try to make sure I understood everything that you just outlined. So when you warmed these plots out in the desert, when you warmed the biocrest, what you saw was that the amount of biocrest didn't necessarily change. It's just the type of biocrest out in the desert did change. And it changed to the types that are doing less out in the ecosystem, or is that not right? That's correct. So it, it shifted to the lightly pigmented cyanobacteria, which provide really important functions that we care about, like soil stabilization but they provide relatively less functions when you look at a community that has mosses that are photosynthetic powerhouses and do a lot and lichens as well as darkly pigmented cyanobacteria, which both fix nitrogen. And so they're better than nothing, but they're not the best they could be, basically. Definitely. And I think you might have said this at the beginning, but I might have missed it. Can you say again what you found when you were stepping on the crust? Was it a similar outcome as when you were warming the crusts? The physical disturbance also led to a decrease in all of the types of biocrusts besides the lightly pigmented cyanobacteria, but we also saw evidence of recovery there. So in that treatment, we didn't have both the ambient and warmed options, so we're not sure what would happen under warming with the physical disturbance. But what we did see was that mosses and lichens did show signs of return. And one of the things that's been for me really interesting to think about is 
when we talk about BioQuest recovery or when I read about it, a lot of the literature talks about dispersal limitations. So being that things after a disturbance, there's just nothing there to, to start to populate the bare ground. But what's interesting about this experiment, and, and I think something to think about, is that we had areas adjacent to our experimental plots where there was healthy biocrust, very diverse communities. So dispersal wasn't a problem kind of getting back into these plots. What was the speed? Like how many years before you started seeing things come back with these different um, disturbance treatments? For mosses, there was like a little bit less than 7% recovery a year compared to what it was before disturbance in the altered precipitation treatments, which is pretty quickly. But by 2018, which was six years, six to seven years after the altered precipitation and trampling treatments ended, there was signs of recovery of mosses in all of the plots, which is really cool. Uh, still really low cover though, it's not back to what it was. So is this different than how we used to think about it? Do we need to revise our timelines of recovery or does it seem about right to you? Yeah, and I think we often try to treat these drier systems like a one-size-fits-all solution. They're all the same, sort of like a monolith, but it really varies. So I think that some of the more conservative estimates that say things will take a really, really long time to come back are probably correct in really dry places. And I also think it depends on the disturbance. So the one study that gets focused on a lot with BioCrest recovery was in Yuma, Arizona, where um, Patton's tanks drove across the Mojave Desert, which really pushed, I mean, a tank is way different type of physical disturbance than a human walking. And, and one of the things, I haven't been to that site, but one of the things I've heard about it is that it really pushed the rocks into the ground. So that's an area that's a lot hotter and a lot drier, and there was probably tons more soil compaction. So I think that the type of disturbance and not even like, oh, it was a physical disturbance. There's, there's a lot of variability in like, how intense was that physical disturbance? <laughs> So with this new information and, and with kind of what you have seen with biocrests not really recovering super well when you have continued warming, you know, what would you say to a manager or to somebody who, you know, is like considering walking across the crest on their next hike? Like, how should we be thinking about managing biocrests in these dryland regions both now and into the future? The implications of the findings of this study are really relevant to the decisions folks are making about land use. So excitingly, there's the potential for biocrest to recover following a physical disturbance, uh, such as like after an area has been grazed. But some of the results from the climate manipulation study suggest that the recovery of certain types might not occur under warmer temperatures. And while we didn't look at the combination of warming following physical disturbance, there's potential that it could be quite similar to the altered precipitation, especially because in the absence of warming those two, the trajectories of those two communities were similar. But I would say that this suggests that disturbance coupled with warming would lead to less diversity 
diverse communities of Biocrest and potentially losses of functions we find to be really important, like soil stabilization and erosion prevention. For me, going on hikes in this area, it's made me be even more militant in my desire to not step on things. <laughs> and as we think about how we use our land here, there, I feel like it does speak to the fact that the decisions we make will have long-term consequences. I'm curious what uh, first got you interested in, in doing science and maybe even dryland science specifically. Yeah, it's been a curvy road. So like many scientists, I've been really interested in science for most of my life. But getting to drylands has been strange. I grew up on a sailboat and was as a kid was really interested in all things marine and kind of just always in the water. And then I got really interested in working in environmental and conservation policy, which led me to Washington, D.C., which was a trip. But in that time, I realized I had a lot of questions and trying to figure out how to answer those questions sort of led me to pursue science research. And I also got really interested in answering other people's questions, especially with an interest in conservation. And then I did my PhD in Southern California, started doing some work in the Chaparral in Southern California and just really like fell in love with the desert. I was like, this is the coolest place ever. It's such a, such a interesting, stressful environment. And there's such a large amount of diversity and really fell in love with the plants. And now I've, the biocrusts are so cool too. <laughs> it's like more and more cool things in, in dryland systems. And finally, what do you enjoy about being a scientist? I really like the diversity within the work. I never thought I could find something with such a great combination of both analytical and creative components. And for me, one of my big sort of stop gaps that made me think I couldn't be a scientist was I always thought that I was bad at math. And so overcoming that and becoming really proficient with quantitative skills has, has been really rewarding for my confidence just overall in life. But I'm very solutions oriented and I like asking questions and searching for answers uh, as well as answering other people's questions. And I think the thing that keeps me interested in science research is really producing useful science that helps address management issues and working with land managers. That's something I got to do a lot in my PhD and one of the things that drew me to my current group and coming to this area. Well, Michaela, I just really appreciate you telling us about all this new BioCrest research. I think people will be really interested in hearing it. So thank you so much for your time. And um, yeah, we really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. To listen to this interview with Michaela Phillips again, or any of our past shows, visit kzmu.org, sciencemoab.org, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Christina Young, Peggy Hodgkins, Emily Arnson, and KZMU.